Good to see you. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, I see some new faces, and so love to meet you after the service if we get a chance. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm the lead teaching pastor. Excited to be going through this series on the book of Psalms that we've called Anthem, which is just a rousing song that connects to the emotion and the imagination of a people, usually for a specific cause. And it's been fun, and I, I know I say this for every single series we do, this is my favorite one, and I mean it this time, this one really is my favorite one. Um, but listen, if you brought a Bible with you, or you're using a device, go ahead and turn to the 73rd Psalm, the 73rd Psalm. This one is a helpful one, and it's going to show us Christ much more clearly, not just Christ, but what he has done for you. Because all these psalms, all 150 of them, have Christ as the centerpiece. And while you're turning to Psalm 73, I don't know if you guys remember this. We actually briefly mentioned it a couple years ago, but there was an independent study run by a local church here in Knoxville on the, I guess, spiritual landscape of what we will call our metro area, which is right around a million-ish people, the larger metro area, right? And what this study found is that 40% of of Knox Metro residents consider themselves nuns. Nuns meaning they have no spiritual affiliation, they don't believe in God, they're not connected to a faith family, however you would want to finish that definition. But what was fascinating is not just that 40%, but another 40% that consider themselves duns, right? These are people that have just said, I am done with a faith family or connecting in a formatted way to a spiritual spiritual God or or have God in their grid to some degree. And that's what I want to kind of look at today are the 182,254 people, your neighbors, that say that they are done with spirituality, done with the local church, done with Sunday morning. And what's interesting is not just that 40%, but there's going to be a subset of that 40% that are not just done with the church, but they are done with God. Totally finished. Done. They have written him off, and they have moved on. This psalm is going to help us with whenever we feel like we are about to be a done. So let's look at Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. You'll remember last week we looked at the um, sons of Korah, which was basically a worship team back in the day. Um, this, this guy Asaph would have been like what we would call a worship leader today. And this is what he says. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, the increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Okay, so we're looking at a very unique lament in this psalm. And when I read this, I immediately think of the duns that were described in that study, right? The couple hundred thousand that would be our neighbors. I especially think of a song that was written by Dave Bazan. Some of you know him. Dave Bazan is a lead singer for a band that used to be called Pedro the Lion. Um, that, I think it fell apart back in the early 2000s. They just now came back, but he did a couple solo albums, and one of them he did in 2009, an album called Curse Your Branches. This is a band out of Seattle, or a singer out of Seattle. And this album is interesting because as a guy who is always put music together about spirituality and politics and just the things that he sees going on in the world. This album specifically was about his conversion to atheism. It is his goodbye letter to God, right? Here's a couple lyrics from this song that he wrote in 2009. Wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all this misbehaving came from one enchanted tree. And helpless to fight it, we should all be satisfied with this magical explanation for why the living die. Hard to be, hard to be, hard to be a decent human being. This is an anthem that he wrote to break up with God, right? It's never really been easier to be secular than it is today. I mean, 2018 is not 1818. It's just not. Not, not that people were less sinful in 1818, but at least back then there was some sort of a grid. There was a chassis that everybody had in their mind that at least there was some sense of spirituality in God, at least in the mix, right? But now, today, it's never been easier to not believe. In fact, today, it's actually socially admirable to actually put out there that you were done with God, that you were an atheist, that you were finished, that you were now a done, right? Because it's accepting some sort of a spiritual reality, no matter how it looks, it's becoming laughable, almost like believing a fairy tale. My opinion, and this is my opinion, I think this begins in the universities and the colleges and works its way out. That's what I think. This is why I've always felt for years, for 20 years, I've always felt like college towns are probably the most crucial place to plant churches and make disciples. College towns, right? I want you to consider that 196 of the first 202 church, or yeah, not churches, schools, 
colleges, universities, any institution of high academic learning, right? 196 out of the first 202 were actually started as schools to build disciples, Christian disciples, to go out into the world to all areas, all spheres, and have heavy influence. Princeton started as a Presbyterian seminary. Harvard, in 1600, they put on their seal, which is very interesting, truth for Christ and truth for the church. They've changed it recently to just say truth. That's all it says. Brown University hasn't gotten around to changing theirs yet. It still says, in God we hope. Even then, even then, colleges knew if we want to influence society, if we want to change culture, we do so by making disciples and sending them out. This is why I believe Knoxville has more cultural influence than many other cities that are much, 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 much larger than we are. I think we're a much more influential city than Dallas, Texas, than Nashville, than Phoenix. I mean, those three cities, they don't even have a school that has more than 7,000 people in it. But we do. I think if the idea of God is a fairy tale to 10 people in a room, I submit to seven to eight of them pick that up from a college somewhere, a professor somewhere. I know I was one of them. I was one of these people. I was a dun for the first four years I was in college. And I remember how effective college was at making me and my friends feel like to believe in God, you might as well be believing in like a Disney character like Moana or Peter Pan. It was just that laughable to have some sort of a fantasy that you really staked your life on. And it's not just science, I think, or technology that is repositioning Christianity in our culture today. I think ultimately it is what we perceive is injustice. Good people losing, villains winning. People that misbehave or prospering, people that are behaving or perishing. I think this is really what's doing it. That thing that we see on the news, that we see around us, that causes something in our heart to say, hey, that's not right. That's not right at all. There can't be a God if there is injustice on that level. right? Because the sight of injustice, it unsteadies us. And believe me, it's supposed to. It's supposed to unnerve you a little bit. You're actually built and designed so that whenever you see a hard injustice, it's supposed to throw you off center a little bit. I mean, is this not what makes the gospel story so beautiful and yet scandalous at the same time? Jesus taking something he really doesn't deserve, you getting something you really don't deserve at the same time, he is punished, we are benefited in the same process. It looks like the wrong people are getting the wrong things. That's why it's beautiful, and it's also scandalous at the same time. So today, Asaph leads doubters, people that have doubts whenever they see the injustice in the world. Good people winning, or bad people winning, and then good people losing. And I think of all the 150 psalms that I've read and spent time in, I think this is the greatest psalm for whenever my mind understands, but my heart refuses to. They don't agree. I know all the right answers, but right here I'm just not feeling it. And so here Asaph, he's struggling with the same thing. In fact, he's struggling so much, he almost quit the whole God thing and became a dun himself. That's what he means, by the way, in verse 2 when he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. That's him saying, I just about cashed in on the whole God thing. I just I saw too much. It just doesn't make sense. It's not computing. So I think I'm done. Last week I said that the Bible will assume, the Bible assumes that you will be depressed in life as we looked at the psalm on depression. But make no mistake, the Bible assumes you're going to have doubts. 
that you'll carry doubts with you. And God doesn't want you to avoid your doubts. He doesn't want you to just be comfortable with your doubts. But having doubts is a natural part of your journey as a disciple. It's a natural part. It's not sinful. It's not even immature to have doubts. In fact, I'll argue that you cannot mature as a disciple. You cannot grow as a Christian unless you learn how to contend with and filter through all the doubts that come, especially ones that you gather whenever you see something like injustice. Dostoevsky, who's a Russian writer, he said this at one time. He said, it is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna, he says, is born of a furnace of doubt. I find myself with him. This struggle that Asaph is having is the same one that Dostoevsky has. It's identical to the one that Jeremiah had, the same one that Job had, that Dave Bazan has had, and billions of people outside of those guys. But to be a disciple of Jesus, it means seeing wicked people triumph. and It means seeing benevolent people fall. It means being viscerally affected by that, being unsteadied. To be a disciple, it means having serious moments where your mind understands, but your heart does not. And this conflict between the, what the heart feels and the mind understands, it's not a small conflict either, right? In fact, let's just look. Go back to verse 1 in Psalm 73. This is what it says, verse 1. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he goes on to describe this life that they're living, where it looks like they're just getting away with murder. It looks like they're getting everything that they ever wanted, except for him. He's not getting what he wanted. I think most of the time, we see injustice in the news, whether we're watching it, reading it on our phone, flipping through everything, and we'll hit these big stories of something horrible happening to good people or something that is good that is happening to horrible people, and we think in our minds just for a moment, God, what are you up to there? Like, what exactly are you doing in that moment? But it doesn't really affect us too much. It lingers for a moment, and then it moves on. Why? Because it's out there. It's something that's going on, and you can always click the next link, right? You can always just wait for the next story to come along. But whenever injustice visits you personally, it's got more fertile soil to grow and develop doubt. You can't just click the next link. It's right in your face, and you have to deal with it. And I think this is where Asaph finds himself whenever he's composing this anthem. And that's where it was for me, too. Listen, when I left God, well, I'll just say this. My parents, they became Christians when I was in middle school. I think I was in the eighth grade. Right? I watched it happen. I watched an old Baptist pastor come over, talk to them about Jesus and the gospel. They all got down on their knees right there at the, the coffee table, and I watched them pray. And then I watched our household rhythms radically change, meaning we went to church on Sundays now, right? which meant I went to things like Sunday school. Right? I didn't know that there was a special school on Sundays, but yet there it was, and we had Sunday school, and we had adult service. You know, We had all the things that I grew up all the way through high school. And then when I left home, I left with a faith that believed that there was a God, but it was not a saving faith. And those are two different faiths, by the way. It's probably a different sermon altogether. I believed that there was a God somewhere, doing good things for good people and probably not smiling on the people that were misbehaving, but I didn't have the faith that trusted that he was my God. And so whenever I got to school, Texas Tech, 1994, I quickly started to abandon the idea of God and spirituality in general. I was a science major. Science was blooming right before my eyes. 
I, I, I was learning things out of the classroom that didn't really match what I'd learned in Sunday school. Fossils were becoming more important to me than what everyone was calling a fairy tale. But I was able to navigate that. You know what caused me to slip and nearly fall away? What caused me to just give up on the whole thing and be a done for the next four years? It's the fact that wrong people were getting the wrong things and my scales of justice were not balancing. I was tired of seeing good friends get cancer. They were behaving fine. They were moral people. They were doing great things. I was tired of seeing villains get away with everything and just be wealthier and more powerful. Questions like, God, why don't you just do things that are good to good people for crying out loud? How hard is that math? I mean, if they're behaving, give them something good and catch it. When they're misbehaving, don't give them anything good. It just seems really simple to me. Those are just big general questions, but then it becomes personal sometimes. And that's where Asaph is. It's not just, why are bad people getting good things? It's, why am I not getting something? Did you catch that vibe when you read through it? Why, wait, why am I not getting something? Now it's personal. Now it's not just some big theological question he's struggling with. He feels like the injustice is oppressing him. You know, I graduated college in 99. That was the same year as the Columbine shooting. I remember having lunch with my advisor at the time. My advisor becoming a really close friend by that time. Um, it was more than just an advisor. We hung out, we ate, we worked out. We just spent a lot of time together. Interestingly enough, he started off in a seminary and did very well, and then he left God. Just gave up on God. He's a triple PhD in the sciences. He's real helpful for me in school. And one day, we were talking about the shooting, and he said, Luke, what kind of God allows such a horrible injustice to happen? Good people died. Good people were shot. I mean, if, you're, if your God is a God of justice, and he's just got dominion over all of creation, then why are we seeing such heavy injustice? Here's the thing. I didn't know how to answer him. On top of that, I agreed with him. Yeah. I think he's right. I didn't know you were allowed to disagree, though. I didn't know that that was okay to say, and it was okay to have a struggle like that. You see, in our hearts, we want God to take behavior into account when it comes to who wins and who loses. So it seems to us that when God visits wrath or punishment on someone who behaves well but believes differently, that that's a vast overreaction on God's part. He's overreacting, right? And we also believe that if prosperity falls on someone who acts like a villain, it doesn't matter what they believe. And then it's just God's oversight. So we read in the Bible, God telling us all the time about how just he is, and, and, but it's not squaring with what we see. And so it provokes doubts, and we have doubts, and those doubts create bitterness and distance because the character of God does not seem to line up with what we are watching in the world. So we start asking even more important questions like, does God even exist? Is he even real, or do I only believe this because I was born in America, right? See, these are growing in importance, these questions. And for some of you, maybe you've not been provoked to maybe just cast God off and break up with God. Maybe you are not the one that says, I'm done, I'm writing God off, I'm a done now, see you later, I'm just going to live my own life. But maybe you've got enough doubts in your life that's created some distance between you and Lord where you can't be close to him. There's a large wedge of bitterness between you and him. 
I remember in our last church plant in Florida, a good friend of mine that I'd spent years getting to know. He was very far from Jesus. I prayed very often for the Lord to change his heart. We traveled with him. We celebrated holidays with him. We love this family. I love this guy. I remember one breakfast with him, him saying, Luke, you're always talking to me about this God. I mean, and every time I'd start that, he could see it coming a mile away too. I didn't have real good style points back then. So I started to kind of talk towards the gospel and he could see it. I could see the smirk rolling up on his face, right? I would just do it anyway. And he said, listen, I would believe in God if he sat down right here with us in Denny's and just showed himself. <laughs> if that happened, hey, I'll convert. In fact, if that happens, I'll probably be a pastor just like you, man. I'll go to I'll do whatever I need to do. All God's got to do is just come and show up and sit down. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you're just being goofy right now. But when I got in my car, I was fuming. Yeah, God, why wouldn't you do something like that? Seems to me he's not the one holding up the transaction. Seems to me you are. Why don't you just come and show up? He's a great guy. He's a moral guy. He, he, he loves people. He loves his family. I don't know why you're doing this. And so I would be bitter with God. I would struggle. I had doubts. So what does Asaph do with all this bitterness and envy and doubt? This is interesting. Look at verse 15. He tells us, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Let's just stop right there. The Psalms pivot. This is where it's found right here. It came whenever Asaph entered the sanctuary, right? Whenever he went into the sanctuary to interact with God. And I can only imagine what this interaction looked like, by the way. Probably him venting a lot, just like Job, just like Jeremiah, just like me. But the thing is, is in this passage, he left differently than he came in. Like magic, I guess. So is that how it happens? Is that it? Just find a worship service somewhere, and then you just can leave your doubts at the door? It just changes you just like that? I mean, what's really happening here? So we don't just take it at face value. What is really happening here? The sanctuary, this is a neat concept. You've got to hear this. This, at the time it was written, could refer to either the tabernacle or the temple. So either the tabernacle that Moses built or the temple that Solomon built, right? It could be either one, but both are man-made places where God would make his presence known, okay? So if you've ever even done a cursory reading of the Old Testament, you'll see those stories where God fills the tabernacle or fills the temple with his presence, and there's all kinds of smoke and smell and lightning and fire. It's just, you, you get this overwhelming sense that, man, not only is God there, but it is just overwhelming what this presence is doing, right? So that's what we pick up. That is what's being referred to here. Now, Asaph's experience of the presence of God in worship is what recalibrated his perspective. That's what we're seeing. He is at this point in the whole psalm realizing that the present realities around him are not ultimate realities. The present realities are not ultimate realities. A sanctuary didn't change him. God's presence changed him. Experiencing God changed him. Notice he didn't theology his way out of doubt. He didn't willpower his way out of doubt. He didn't behave his way out of doubt. He worshiped his way out. And this should give you great hope. This fact right here, as we all drag our own big bag of doubts in a room like this, right? Worship acts in a sort of chiropractic way, where it kind of pulls all of our knots and kinks out, where you and I can see that the present realities around us are not ultimate realities. But that's done in worship. 
This where we're recalibrated, where we find ourselves saying things like, oh, God, you are God and I am not. Yeah, I see this crazy stuff happening, but your wisdom is wise. Even my wisest wisdom is a joke compared to you. Your character is pure. Your righteousness is pure. You're beautiful. You're my treasure. That's the recalibration that happened in this sanctuary with Asaph. It's not a place that changed him. It's God's presence that changed him. Right? Look at verse 21. We'll keep walking through it. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Okay, this is interesting. You know, it's helpful here to remember, look back at the garden, because the garden was this really cool place. By the way, there's no tabernacle or temple in the garden. So where was God's presence? It was there in the cool of the day. God wrapped his presence right around the cosmos. It was obvious at all times with Adam and with Eve. Right there in Eden was the center of God's presence. Then the dragon comes in and convinces that first couple that that paradise that they were living is actually an insult to them. And so how do they respond? Brutishly, ignorantly, like basic beasts. It's just what Asaph is confessing right here. He's confessing the same thing. He's saying, man, I was far off. I was way off base. I was just a simpleton, even thinking that I could lodge an argument. Job says the same thing, by the way. He says, therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not even know. This is what recalibration looks like right here. And we've all been tempted to see present realities as ultimate realities. That's something that we're all tempted to do. We're all tempted to see God's grace towards us as some sort of an insult. All of us tempted to have an embittered soul whenever we see things like injustice and carry our doubts around. We're all tempted to think like an ignorant brute and a beast. You see, it's in worship that you notice the distance between you and God. It's in that place where you're submitted at the feet of God and you are worshiping with a submitted soul that you are finally able to see the distance between a beautiful God and where we are at. This is what it means in verse 21. He's basically saying, I just wanted my own selfish desires to be met. I just wanted my stuff. Asaph has a ferocious case of envy here, hungering after what God is just not going to give him. Maybe this is you today, by the way. Hungering for what God's just not going to give you. You want what you want, but you're not getting it. But guess who is getting it? People you don't think deserve it, right? You're seeing other people win, but you're not winning. And you're upset about that. And God's holding you back. And it's injustice. And you're mad. And now you have doubts. It's also in this place of worship that Asaph is able to celebrate God's unbreakable love for him. So look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. This is a really helpful part of the psalm, right? Because what he's saying is, is God never left me even though I was leaving him. I was contemplating becoming a dun, but he was not done with me ever. Now, how do you and I know that this is the case for us as heavy doubters? If you're a heavy doubter in the room, how do you know that you are secure, that he holds your right hand? Where is your confidence that that is the case? How much are you really allowed to doubt? Do you ever think about stuff like that? 
I mean, our security is not founded upon our confidence, but in Jesus' worship. We know that. But the big question I typically get from younger disciples, no matter what age they are, and the big one I had whenever I was a younger disciple is at what point does my doubt mean that I've lost my salvation? I mean, at what point is just doubt too much doubt? At what point have I totally slipped away? Isn't that a big fear? It's a big fear for people. When is God finally done with me and my big bag of doubts? Listen, it is God in the flesh as Jesus that rescues us from being beasts, not our impressive confidence. It's not our lack of doubts. If you are a Christian, hear me now, if you're a son or a daughter of the king and God has rescued you by the blood of Christ, your doubts will not remove your salvation. Your doubts are not stronger than the cross and your doubts are not stronger than an empty tomb. If your doubts were strong enough to forfeit your salvation, then the blood of Jesus in an empty grave is really not that impressive anymore. And if that's the case, then we've got some bigger questions, right? What else isn't covered? What else is stronger than the blood on the cross? If your salvation is founded upon how your confidence is trending, then yeah, you can lose your salvation. It'd be hard to get a good night's sleep, wouldn't it? But if your salvation is founded upon Jesus' perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice, the life, death, and life of God and man, then you will never lose it. You will never lose it. But Luke, I've got big doubts. I know I'm a Christian, Luke. I know I am. I know that I am. But I have big doubts, and I'm struggling through them. Great. Okay, take a seat. Take a seat next to Job and Paul in some seasons and Asaph apparently, and you probably find me there from time to time. In other words, join the club. Disciples doubt. It's just a natural part of the whole journey. I mean, look at Romans 8.38. We'll put it up on the screen. Stay in the psalm. Romans 8.38. It says, For I am sure, I am sure, this is Paul saying to the Romans, I am confident He's not confident in his confidence. He's confident in something else. And he's about to, I am confident, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We read this evocative language. We kind of get the feeling he's being dramatic to show there's absolutely nothing that can separate us from God loving us from God loving his kids. How odd would it be for there just to be a comma there and for Paul to say, except for your doubts. No, listen, get that under control because he could, be, he could be pretty upset about that and just dump you. Anyway, moving on, and then just continues on with Romans. It would be frightening, but he's going the other way. There is no way you can be separated. Almost slipping does not mean losing your salvation here. Don't let anyone teach that to you. It just means slipping away from truth. No one loses salvation if they've, in fact, been saved. No one loses salvation if they've, in fact, been saved. No one loses their salvation if they have, in fact, been saved. If you think you are so much of a beast that you have lost God's gift of grace on your life, you're just thinking way too highly of yourself. Cut it out. Way too highly, right? But if we were to swing back to the bigger question, does simple worship erase doubt? Does simple worship just simply erase doubt? I think what this psalm is showing us here is that the presence of God is a perspective cleanser. It does recalibrate and retune us a little bit. That's what I'm seeing here. It helps you and I differentiate 
between present realities and ultimate realities. That happens in the presence of God. I am not saying, nor is Asaph saying here, go to church so you don't doubt. No one's saying that here. Soft music, dark lighting, the elements in the back, singing a song. I mean, listen, that can be a space for worship. And we do the best we can as a, as a team of leaders. And I mean, you see them up here, these just super talented musicians. We do the best we can to create an environment to make it easy to worship. But you can, you can get to the same place in a foxhole or a cubicle on Tuesday, right? Or through migraines in a, seep, a night where you're not able to get any sleep. Asaph going to the sanctuary, that's him putting himself before God as one submitted to God. He went humbly searching. He's searching, and he's humble. And what satisfied him was not an answer to his big question. Did you see what satisfied him? It was a treasure. Who have I in heaven but you, he says. He found a treasure instead. Who have I in heaven but you? This is what we have been saying every single week, different ways, different angles. This is the same pinnacle truth, that God is better. I mean, we did a whole entire huge series on suffering. On what, was this not the punchline in every single sermon that God himself is better? He's better than your healing. He's better than your promotion. He's better than your, your perfect marriage. He's better than your, your getting a best friend. He's better than all of that. He's the pinnacle treasure. Now, this is where... This becomes not just a good psalm, but a helpful one for us, as we've been seeing the last few weeks. Sometimes we, we cast psalms off rather quickly because they read very beautifully, but they don't seem very applicable, right? This is where it changes. Because today we don't have tabernacles or temples. And I've already made very clear, it's not really a place. So where do we go with our big bag of doubts? And this is stunning what God has done. This is stunning what God has done with his presence that presence that we just described with smoke and fire and angels and lightning and incense, it, all of mankind's senses were arrested in those moments in the tabernacle and the temple. God takes that and he says, that's just 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of what I'm about to do. And he puts it in a man instead. Puts it in Christ. Christ becomes the better sanctuary. This is what we see in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's now in a man, not in a building, not built with human hands. Now, what's interesting about this passage, by the way, dwelt there in the Greek, that word dwelt in John 1.14, it literally means to pitch a tent and to live in a tabernacle. He's just casting a glance back to this very moment that Asaph is singing about. It's the same thing. John is telling us that God dwells with us more personally now than he's ever dwelt with mankind before, and it is in the flesh as Jesus. Now, this is where Christ enters this psalm, right? Because as we've seen every week, every single psalm has Christ as the centerpiece. And this is him, the better tabernacle, the better sanctuary, the better temple, the better presence of God before us, says Paul to the Colossian church, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of it, the fullness of God, the entirety of God, pleased to tent with us 
in Jesus. So God is no longer in a place, nor will he ever be again. Listen, you can go out to Israel with all the money in the world, and you can build a bunch of new temples if you want. They can be exactly perfect to spec from what we see in the Bible. It's not like God's going to show up. He doesn't live in a building now. He's not going to live in a building then. He lives in a man. I mean, you catch yourself sometimes. I don't know if you do. I catch myself around some people, and they're hyper-spiritual about a moment, right? And I think they're feeling something viscerally that maybe other people aren't feeling, but they'll look and they'll say, wait a minute, God is in this place. Have you ever seen it? God is in this place today. I mean, I guess. I mean, is he not in every place, though? I mean, find me a place in the cosmos where God is not. Of course he's in this place. He's everywhere. He's in a man. He is our Jesus. For us today, worshiping Jesus recalibrates us in such a way that we're reminded that present realities are not ultimate realities. Focusing our eyes on the gospel and what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus and a living, dying, and living again God, repositioning ourselves in submission and worshiping this God recalibrates our heart. It helps us with our doubts. It reveals the distance between us and God. It reminds us that he's not letting go, even if we're tempted to do so. It means that we can bring our big bag of doubts to him, and guess what? He's not intimidated by it. He's not struggling with your doubts. And when we doubt and grow bitter and nearly slip away, we can turn to our better sanctuary in Jesus, who is our truest treasure, our best treasure. I love that song, In Christ Alone. It seems to capture some of the essence of this psalm. Here's a couple of the words from that hymn. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. You know, as we start to land the plane here, I've got one big diagnostic question for you, which I, I always try to leave you with as we get closer to the end. Something for you to think about. But I want you to imagine what awaits you whenever this age finishes. When this age is over, like, no more pain. No more pain. Just think about that for a moment. I mean, I, I have pains, you have pain. No more sickness. No more stuff coming apart. No more loneliness. You'll get there and you'll be able to find your friends again. Your loved ones who you haven't seen in a long time. Every pleasure imaginable is what you will have before you. Here's the question. Would you be happy to go there if God wasn't there? Would you be happy to go there if God wasn't there? If heaven is just fine for you without God, then your deepest treasure is not God. I mean, heaven is just a cleaner hell without God there. Is God your deepest treasure? Is the gospel your deepest story? You see, the doubt we feel whenever we see things like injustice, it's not a knowledge problem, it's a worship problem. It's a worship problem. Well, Christ is not our chief pinnacle treasure. And this is not a cure for all the skeptics. 
and all the doubting. I mean, you're likely as a disciple still going to carry questions as you go forward, but Jesus as your treasure and center of worship is how you're going to navigate those doubts and troubles. That's how you're going to find your way through them, one way or the other. You know, interestingly, the story of God's presence does not really find its end in Jesus alone. Some of you, you saw this coming, but as the church, we are the body of Christ and therefore constitute the new and better temple in which God is very pleased to dwell. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2.20. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read it to you. He's talking about the church, and he says that we, here, Legacy Church, in August of 2018, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now the glory of God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. Now we are a better tabernacle. Right? This is why he also says to the Corinthian church, for we are the temple of the living God. So God's presence, his spirit is gifted to the collected people of God, the church, right? So I said just a few minutes ago that the 2.5 songs that you'll be able to focus on here in a moment when the lights go down, right? That is not the totality of worship where all your kinks are going to get straightened out and all your doubts vanish. It's not going to happen, right? I still believe that. No, no magic trick to that. This is not a magical place, right? But it is a spiritual place. It's not a bad place to worship. Something spiritual is happening when you worship. If you approach the presence of God with the heart of Asaph, submitted, hungry, reaching, something spiritual happens. If nothing spiritual happens whenever we worship God, even corporately, then we're just getting together for mere sentimentality. It's just sentimentalism. Just nostalgia. We sing a song, it feels therapeutic, move on to the next song. Kind of like Rocky Top, right? Therapeutic, not real powerful. It's just something we do. Listen, you might have doubts today, but just know as a Christian, you can carry them to God and ask for his spirit to recalibrate your perspective and show that present realities are not ultimate realities. And you could leave that place of God very differently than you walked in, just as we saw with Asaph. You could find your sin and confess it before him. You can treasure him in this moment above all other treasures. And you can look forward and celebrate his grasp on you being so tight that even when you are slipping and stumbling and almost done with him, he is not done with you. Right? Hey, go ahead and stand with me. As you're standing, I'm going to read the last stanza over you of the same hymn in Christ alone. The psalmist says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here is the power of Christ I'll stand. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so sweet and so kind to us, for being such a gentle and generous and benevolent God, that of all the injustices that we see, the biggest one feels like it's the cross. Even though that's where perfect justice was meted out, it feels like the wrong person is getting the wrong thing. But Lord, as your church, we benefit 
We get righteousness, which we ultimately do not deserve. We don't get eternal, or eternal punishment, which we do deserve. And then we watch our hero, the God-man, receive a wrath and a punishment he does not deserve. So Lord, we thank you for your gospel story over us. We thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, I just know that there's a bunch in this room who are doubting. They have serious doubts. Some ranging from small to medium. Others, they're pretty titanic doubts of whether you even exist. And they're seeing things like injustice in the world and they can't make the math work out in their head. And Lord, we just say as a church, we petition you as a church to just alter our perspective. Change the way we see. We come to you in worship with open hearts, with open hands, with a submitted soul to say you are God and we are not. And your wisdom is so far beyond our understanding. Lord, that we would draw close to you in this moment and watch envy and bitterness and doubt just roll away, just blow away with the wind. Lord, that we can leave a sanctuary, not this sanctuary, but that thin place that we meet with you, we could leave changed. We enter as a brute beast and we leave as a delighted worshiper. Let that happen in this moment, Father. We give this moment to you. And Lord, as we take communion, as we take just a simple piece of bread and, and, and put it in juice and we take it in remembrance of you, we do so knowing that that is a gift your salvation to us is a gift that had a great cost to it. We're not just celebrating the cost of that gift. We're celebrating the benefit of it and the fact that we are in a family we really don't deserve to be in. And we'll sit at a banqueting table eating and communing with you again someday. We're not just remembering. We're celebrating. So we love you and we thank you. We pray that you meet us in this moment. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
can find depression awfully fast. We, we could be depressed for a million different reasons. And yet you are not some priest that does not understand that. You're not some, you're not some king poet that, that, that has not felt the same thing, that has not been tempted to despair, just like we are tempted to despair. You're a beautiful priest, and you've done beautiful things for your people. You have given wrath to wipe out sin, to bring pure justice to this place, and then you received it at the very same time to give grace to us, a wrathful people not deserving of it. So as we sing and as we take bread and wine, as we, as we take the elements in the back, we do so in celebration of what you've done. Father, I thank you that we could come with just a real, true, visceral honesty. We could be very authentic with how we feel. And you don't rebuke us for that. And then at the same time, Father, you've given us great reason to celebrate for what you've done. That we can be nostalgic of your gospel. We can think of what you've done and how beautiful it is and where you're leading us to. But that bread and that wine does not just symbolize a broken up body. It symbolizes a new banquet, a new festival waiting for us where we have a place made for your people where we could come as sons and daughters and celebrate with a new family in a new earth, in a new heavens. We can do this. So much to celebrate, so much to be thankful. So we could carry our pain in one hand, we could carry your promise in the other, and we can still grow. Some of the depressions in this room and in this city, I don't understand. I don't understand why they're there. I don't understand why people are experiencing them. But I trust you. I trust you, Lord. Help us be a trusting people. We ask for your Holy Spirit to minister to us as we make sense of these things, as we wrestle with these things. And then help us, Lord, commit passages like this to where we can war when the, when the time comes. So when discouragement comes and when depression comes and downcast spirit is over us and we run to a river and there's no water there, at that time we can stop and we can say, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you downcast? Praise God. Lord, help us be good ministers of the gospel, even to ourselves. We love you, Father. We thank you for being so great and so noble and so beautiful, so brilliant, so wise, so kind, and so gentle with us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.